Good morning, Redeemer. It's good to see you. Happy Easter. It's good to be with you. It's good to, it's good to have, have this many people in here. This is wonderful. Um, many, many of you, uh, are, even in our church family, uh, are here for the first time in a while, either because you were able to get vaccinated uh, or because masks are optional uh, or some other reason. Uh, for, for whatever reason, we're really glad that you're here. Uh, we're really glad to see you. We need you. We need each other. As a preacher, uh, I'm aware that some people come to church on Easter uh, who don't usually come, right? Maybe, maybe uh, just come once a year or so, or, or maybe you're just, you're just new here. Um, my name is Lawson, if, if we haven't met, and I'd love to, to meet you. Uh, with, with the isolation of the pandemic, I think one of the things we all experienced was the need for people, right? The need for each other, the need for interactions, um, the need for community and friends, the, the need for... Uh, for something more than a Zoom call, you know? Uh, the, the church is the family of God and has always been a place to be known and accepted and loved and cared for. And I hope that, that you'll find that here. I'm speaking for my family. We've been here for a little over eight years um, and we've just found this church family to be wonderfully kind and caring and supportive. If you're looking for, uh, for a perfect church, then look no further. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, if you're looking for a perfect church, you'll have to keep looking, right? You, sorry, um, we're not that place. We have our struggles. We have our blind spots. We have our sins, and we have our sorrows. And the pastors are the same, right? We are, we are stubbornly and reliably human. If you try to lift us up to be more than that, uh, then we will disappoint you 100% of the time. So why, why am I a part of this church if we're not perfect? Why would I encourage you to take the time and the energy and the sacrifice to be part of a church family, if not here somewhere? Because of Jesus. Right? Because of Jesus. He's the only perfect one. He's the only one worth lifting up and worshiping. He's the only one who will never, ever, ever let us down. And he's the reason why we're here today, this morning, People ask me this week, what are you, what are you planning on preaching on? Uh, and the great thing as a preacher is you know on, on Easter what you're preaching on. That's something on the resurrection, I think. I think I'll stick to that. Maybe Leviticus. No, I'll do the resurrection. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> so we're, we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus this morning. Um, and we're going to explore three questions. One, does the resurrection make historical sense? Two, does the resurrection make emotional sense? And three, does the resurrection make practical sense? Historical, emotional, and then practical. Let's pray, and we'll, we'll jump in. Father, thank you so much for bringing us here this morning, uh, this Easter morning. Thank you that we can rejoice in you. Um, thank you that we can sing to you and praise you. I uh, thank you that, that you can hear us because you're alive. And I pray that you would come now, uh, Holy Spirit, you would speak to our hearts in the ways that we need it. I don't, I don't know what's going on in, in everyone's heart, everyone's life, everyone's situation in this room, but you do, Father. And so we wait for you. We wait for you to come because you are our help and our shield. We, and I pray that you would speak to each person and all of us through your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Number one, does the resurrection make historical sense? Does it make historical sense? I have in mind those people who don't yet believe in Jesus. Um, and and maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe if you're here this morning, you picked a really good morning to come to church. Uh, because this is, I think, the most important question you can answer. 
right? Is Jesus alive, breathing, or is he not, right? And, and, and you can quote the Bible on this. If he's not alive and breathing, then Christianity is all foolish. It's all stupid, right? You can quote Paul. If, if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is futile. We are still in our sins, right? We are of all people the most to be pitied, <laughs> right? But if the resurrection is true, then, then someone rose from the dead, and that does change things. And so it's the most important question, I think, um, that we can answer. And maybe the leading objection to the resurrection uh, is just that we, that we can't trust the Bible's account. You know, people just say, well, the Bible, you know, it's an old book. Uh, it's been changed over the years. You know, how can we even know that we have a reliable uh, eyewitness testimony? Another related objection is this. Okay, let's say we do trust the Bible is, is you know, a reliable account uh, of what the eyewitnesses actually said. How can you actually, how can you trust them? Right? People don't rise from the dead. They obviously just made the story up. So quickly, I just want to address these two issues, uh, these two objections as, w- as well as I can. First, really great questions. Thanks for bringing them up to me. Um, the first objection is, is actually the easiest. Can we trust that, that we actually have the eyewitness accounts? Um, I'm not going to be able to give you all, all the information, of course. I'm not a historian. So you can look this up if, if you'd like to. You can look up manuscript evidence for the New Testament uh, online. You can find it pretty easily. But basically, what, what, we, what you'll see is that we have far and away the most manuscript evidence for the New Testament um, than any comparable historical document, historical book. Uh, when I was dating my wife, Caroline, I wrote her uh, several, lots of love letters, um, you can't see them, don't ask. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Im- imagine that I were to give, we had a lot of time, and I were to give each of you one of those love letters, right, the same one, each of you had, saw the same one, and you were to make a copy, I said, make an exact copy of this, of my love letter. And you all made a copy. And then imagine uh, that, that I destroyed the original, right, and I destroyed the original copy. Um, well, if I took, so if I took one of your copies, like I took, say, Ben, ben Grimmie's copy, uh, and I, you know, it'd probably have some, some errors, some spelling errors, some punctuation errors. Uh, and, and I could look at that and I'd go, man, I, I, I don't know, was that in the original or not? Uh, or did that, was that just a mistake he made? I couldn't really tell. Um, but if I took all of your copies of my love letter, right, I could, I could put together a pretty accurate, uh, right, replica of the original love letter, right? If there was a period missing in someone's copy, I could see, oh, there's 99, and the 99 others, there's a period there. So uh, there was a period in the original. And, and this is obvious, obviously in a very simplified way, how historians determine the reliability of a document. If you just have a handful of copies, if there's a lot of discrepancy between them, if there's a lot of, of time between the original and between the copies that you have, uh, then you can't be very confident of what the original actually, actually said. But if you have a lot of copies, uh, and, and, and some of them are pretty close to the original time when, when they were written, then you can be very confident, right? You can determine what the original document said with a lot of accuracy. And what we have in the New Testament is just overwhelming manuscript evidence, right? And that's what you'll find. Um, for comparison, you know, Beowulf, which many of you may have read in high school, or if you're in high school, you may be reading it. Uh, it's from one manuscript. There's only one copy of it. So that's not a very, we don't have very good accuracy. We don't know if that was the original or if it's really been changed a lot. 
Um, Homer's Iliad has around 1,800 and counting uh, copies or fragments that have been found. So a lot more, right? We can be pretty sure about Homer. Um, but, but for the New Testament, uh, there are about 24,000 known copies of parts or all of, of it. Uh, and the earliest copies are just a, f- a couple decades after they were written, right, in the first century. And, and so, uh, again, this is, this is oversimplified. I'm not a historian. Uh, but but it, I think it's safe to say that no serious historian will call into question the accuracy of the text we have, right? That th- these were, in fact, the eyewitness accounts. It's just too well attested, right? We just have too many, too much evidence for that. So, so we have, I believe, the accurate accounts from the eyewitnesses. But this brings up the next objection, right? Why should we trust them? Right? People lie. Right? Fake news is not a new phenomenon, right? Uh, maybe this is just an early incident of that. So let me share three, three points with you that, that, and there are many more you could talk about, but three, three that are convincing to me um, as why we can trust and why we should trust the eyewitness accounts in the Gospels. Um, first, in, in all four Gospels, women were the first witnesses to the resurrection. Okay, I might strike you, oh, why, why is that convincing? Well, in, in, a, in a patriarchal society, right, as it was in the first century, uh, the testimony of women wasn't, wasn't respected, right? It wasn't even admitted, admittable in court. Um, and so if someone was making up this story, if the disciples are just fabricating this, um, they would have, it would have done them no favors to make women be the initial witnesses to the most important event in the whole of their religion, the resurrection of the dead. Right? It, would, it wouldn't have lent them credibility. In fact, quite the opposite. So why are women the first witnesses in all four of the Gospels? Because they were actually the first witnesses. They found the empty tomb first. And that's the simplest explanation. So first is women were the eyewitnesses. Second, um, we, we know that the apostles all suffered greatly for this, this story, right? They suffered to the death for this story. If, you, if you're part of a, of a conspiracy, um, it, it's great when it's benefiting you, right? You, you know, you're getting wealthy, you're getting powerful, you're, it's going well. It's not actually great. You shouldn't be a part of a conspiracy. But, uh, but right, you see what I'm saying? It, it, it's to your benefit. Uh, you can see why people would be a part of it. But when it starts to cost you your livelihood, starts to threaten your family, when it starts to threaten your very life, it gets less appealing, doesn't it? If this was a hoax, you would expect that some of them, some of the disciples, the early disciples, uh, would bow out, would recant, right? Would, would not suffer to the death and die for this story. But history tells us they did. They took it to the grave. Lastly, uh, if the resurrection didn't occur, um, you have to account for the birth of the early church from Judaism, you know, in the first century Roman Empire in some other way, okay? Um, These, you know, the Jews were fiercely monotheistic. A lot of the ancient cultures were uh, were polytheistic, right? Lots of gods, but the Jews were fiercely monotheistic, right? Deuteronomy 6, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. This was a, you know, the foundation of, uh, of Judaism. And so these, these fiercely monotheistic Jews overnight, right? This wasn't like a, a, a slow evolution over many, many hundreds of years. Overnight, 
started worshiping a man as God and spreading his message across the known world. How can you explain that? What could have happened that would cause them for thousands of years to be monotheistic? Boom. No, Jesus is God. Japanese novelist Shusaku Indo says, if we don't believe in the resurrection, we will be forced to believe that what did hit the disciples was some other amazing event, different in kind, yet of equal force in its electrifying intensity. It's hard to imagine an event that could spark that kind of change, that kind of loyalty, that kind of, uh, that kind of uh, movement unless they saw Jesus alive again. Now, I, I know these aren't airtight arguments uh, to someone, especially to someone who presupposes that the resurrection couldn't have happened or that the miraculous isn't possible. Uh, but I think intellectual humility says, man, there's much in the universe that we don't understand. There's lots of mysteries, right? Uh, and, and I think you have to agree that it's not irrational. It's not irrational to, to b- believe this evidence. We have the eyewitness accounts, and there's good, good reason to trust them. So I think it does make historical sense. Second, does the resurrection make emotional sense? Does it make emotional sense? Uh, every, everyone carries around with them uh, a sense of, of guilt and shame, right? Um, Caroline, uh, my wife and I were, were watching, uh, watching the old show Monk. I don't know if y'all are familiar with the show. Uh, it's about a, a kind of an OCD germaphobe detective uh, who has a lot of issues. And uh, on an episode we were watching this week, a, a guy comes up to Monk and says, Monk, you should be ashamed of yourself. And he just responds with, I am, 24-7. <laughs> right? Guilt is feeling bad about something you've done. Shame is feeling bad because of who you are. It's feeling like a bad person. One thing I notice when preaching is that when I start talking about guilt and shame, the room gets real quiet. You might notice it. Right? When 200 people stop fidgeting at the same time, that means something. Right? What does it mean? I think everyone tunes in a little more because we all share this feeling. Right? We all share, 24-7, we share this feeling of guilt and shame. Um, it's a human experience. How does, uh, how does the resurrection make sense of this? Romans 4.25 says he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This, this verse is a little one-sentence summary of, the, of Christianity's good news. He was delivered up. I mean, Jesus was handed over to the authorities and executed on the cross. So what we celebrate and remember Good Friday. And why did, he, why did he die? Look at what it says. He was delivered up for our trespasses. He died in our place for us. And then he was raised. That's the bodily resurrection in history. That's what we're talking about. He was raised, why? It says, for our justification, Justification is just a, a word that means uh, we are made right, we are vindicated. We, we can stand before God as if we had never done wrong. Now here's how this makes emotional sense. Um, the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus explain this universal human experience of guilt and shame. 
The cross says that feeling is an indication of the true guilt and shame that you carry for your rebellion against God and that I carry for my rebellion against God. For specific things you've done, guilt. For your very nature that is set against God, a rebel to him, shame. And and we see this in the cross, don't we? That this is the punishment that you and I deserve to be executed in the most shameful and humiliating way possible, naked and alone. Our guilt and shame, they actually don't go far enough. We cut ourselves a little bit too much slack, maybe. This is what we have earned. But the cross doesn't just explain that for us. Jesus deals with it. Jesus deals with it because you didn't go to the cross. Jesus did. He did it for you. He took your sin on himself. He died, it says, for our trespasses. He hung naked and alone and bled out on the cross. Like, don't you see, he, Jesus entered the human experience and he shared, he carried our sorrows. He took our real sin that we are rightly ashamed of and he bore the punishment for it. How does the resurrection play into this? He was raised, it says, for our justification. Uh, when a person goes to prison for a crime, how, how do you know when he has paid his debt to society? When he's released, right? When the prison doors open and he's set free, it's done, right? How do we know that Jesus truly paid the debt for our sin on the cross? How do we know it's all covered? Because the doors of death opened and he walked out of the tomb. He paid the debt that we owed, death, right? The wages of sin is death. And through death, he defeated death. When his lungs filled back up with air, right? When his eyelids fluttered open in that dark tomb, when his toes wiggled in the grave clothes, he showed that our debt was paid in full and that we can be free. He was raised for our justification and we can stand before God forgiven and clothed with Jesus' goodness as if we had never done anything to be ashamed of. Now, the failure of Christians to live in that freedom uh, from shame that Christ offers is a real problem, right? And we'll talk about that more in a moment. But the cross and the empty tomb explains and answers one of the deepest needs of the human heart and experience, right? To know that we're actually loved, we're accepted, that we're forgiven, that everything is gonna be okay. One other way the resurrection makes emotional sense is in the idea of hope, in the idea of hope. Um, Victor Frankl, uh, wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And in it, he describes uh, his experience in the, in the Nazi concentration camps of World War II. Uh, he was a psychiatrist, a Jewish psychiatrist. And, uh, and so his analysis of what happened to him and to others in the, in the camp is really interesting. It's a little memoir. Um, you can check it out. Uh, many people, he noticed, uh, gave up quite quickly in the camps, right? Either despairing uh, either, you know, crum- and kind of crumbling and dying pretty quickly or, or else giving up morally, 
right? Becoming mean and hardened, becoming cruel and malevolent, becoming a, a, you know, informers a, you know, with the guards against the other, the other uh, prisoners. But some, he noticed, were, were able to maintain both their mind and their, and their integrity even in these most dire circumstances. And what he talks about in this book is, as the common denominator for those people uh, was having some sort of meaning, some sort of hope that the concentration camp couldn't take away. For some, it was religious, right? Uh, for, for, for one man, it was that he thought his wife had died and was watching him from heaven. He wanted to make her proud. Um, for Frankel, it was, it was that these insights that he was having, if he, could, if he could learn from them and then write them down, maybe they could be helpful to others in the future. But, but the point is, he found out that without hope, without a sense of meaning and a sense of purpose, human beings can't live or can't live for long or for very much what we would call a full human life. Right? Meaning, hope is something we, we deeply need Death, you know, is the great enemy of mankind. It's the other universal, right? Uh, all of us die. What is a hope? What is a meaning that death can't take away? What, what's, a, what's a hope that survives the death camp? And for Christians, it's the resurrection. It's the resurrection. Death has been defeated and, and, and now only serves us as a doorway to life. When, when we take our last breath, we know that it will not be our last breath and that we will be raised with the Lord. Th- this is vastly different from uh, an Eastern con- conception of being absorbed into the universe, kind of losing yourself. Um, it, it's, it's vastly different from the modern materialist that says death is just the end of consciousness. That's the end. Right? This is, it's, not a, it's not a vain hope like reincarnation for which there's no evidence. Right? No, we ha- our savior, the, the, the carpenter from Nazareth, walked through the grave unharmed. Right? And so will we. He, he is, Paul says, the first fruits from the dead. The first of the harvest. It means there's more to come. We will rise with him. The, the future has broken into the present. A cleft has opened in the pitiless walls of the world, C.S. Lewis said, and we are invited to follow our great captain inside. While in winter, all might seem dead and hopeless, the spring will come. Even the darkest night is followed by the dawn. The resurrection makes emotional sense by dealing with our guilt and shame and providing a hope that death does not have the last word. Third, does it make practical sense? Does the resurrection make practical sense? I, I want to venture to say that, that most of, of our problems as Christians are, are due to forgetting the resurrection. Right, what, what, a, what an amazingly effective ploy of the devil that we don't think about Jesus being raised all the time. Why don't we? Isn't that the most amazing thing? Isn't that the main thing? How do we not remember? How do we not always, are we not always aware of this? So I want to lay out a couple of practical effects from scripture uh, that, that the resurrection has on our lives. The first is freedom from guilt and shame. We talked about this, but I don't think you can talk about it enough. 
freedom from guilt and shame. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Because Jesus is alive, we can be free from guilt and shame. Christian, Jesus walked out of the grave showing that you are free. There's no punishment left for you. If you wallow in guilt and shame, that is not from the Lord. Now, I'm not talking about conviction, right? There is, God does convict us, but what, what, what does the Holy Spirit do? He convicts us and it leads to repentance without regret, right? If it's drawing you near to the Lord, that's not the devil, <laughs> right? That's the Lord, that's good. But if you just wallow in guilt and shame, if you can't get over it, if as many times as you confess, you just still feel dirty, like that is simply an attack from the enemy. Uh, and it's not true, right? If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Satan cannot bring a charge against you. No one, can bring, can, no one could unearth anything in your life that hasn't already been covered by the blood of Christ. Like we are free because he lives. Next, because he lives, we're free from the power of sin. The power of sin, Romans 6. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Because Jesus is alive, we are free from sin's enslavement. It used to have power over us. We used, to not, we used to be able to do nothing but serve sin, serve ourselves, hurt others. But it doesn't have that power any longer. Our hearts are changed. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. We're free to love God. We're free to pursue the good of others and not just our selfish motives. We, we walk in new resurrection life because Jesus lives. Next, we're free because he lives from fear. It can be free from fear. This is 1 John 4. And we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. The one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. There's no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. Because Jesus lives, there's nothing to fear. Like, what if you could be free from all of your fears? What if, like hypothetically, you could wake up in the world, walk around with perfect confidence that whatever happened, everything would be completely fine? Oh, that would be nice. Right. Well, Christian, that's your situation. Right? That's your situation. Whatever happens, because Jesus lives, you're completely fine. The world is a perfectly safe place for you to be. 
because you have a savior, a good shepherd who's alive and who's well and who's interceding for you in heaven. Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon um, and his three points were, our bad things will turn out for good. Our good things can never be lost. Our best things are yet to come. And isn't that our situation? Right? Fear, worry, anxiety cannot coexist with perfect love. We will, of course, feel those things, right? We're human. We feel these emotions. But we can, by practicing the presence of God, live in his perfect love rather than in fear. Next, because he lives, we have freedom to hope for a better future. Freedom to hope for a better future. Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Because Jesus is alive, we eagerly wait for his return and for the future he brings. However dark, however dismal, however heartbreaking and confusing our lives get here, and they can get that way, can't they? We have his coming to look forward to. However sick our bodies get, we know that we will be raised and our humble bodies will be made like his glorious body. However much we don't fit in here, and this is in our home, we know that we have a home in heaven. And we know that he'll come and he'll make all things new. Next, because he lives, we have freedom to work for a better future. Freedom to work for a better future here. 1 Corinthians 15 is a, is a uh, chapter all about the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus and then our resurrection. And, and, and look at Paul's conclusion. This is the last verse of that chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, look, at, look at Paul's conclusion. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast and movable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Because Jesus lives, we know that our labor here is not in vain. Have you ever invested in someone and it's gone nowhere? Have you ever poured out your love? Have you ever served someone? Just thought, I didn't even care. Have you ever done something in secret, something good for someone and just no one saw? It's all alone. That wasn't in vain. Jesus is bringing his kingdom rule in fullness one day, right? He, he hasn't, he's not ruling as he will, uh, but he has inaugurated his kingdom. And, and, and our role now as citizens of his kingdom, as ambassadors for Christ, is to represent his, his interests, right? Represent the interests of the king. We get to show the world by our love the way of Jesus and his kingdom. Every glass of water you give to the least of these matters in that kingdom. Every grieving person you weep with, every hand you hold, every meal you cook, every time you share the gospel, every long phone call you endure, every diaper you change, every act of kindness you do out of love for the king, all of it matters. God sees it all. And in the Lord, your labor is never in vain. 
All because he lives. Lastly, because he lives, we have freedom to walk with the risen Christ. This is Matthew 28, 20. Remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And maybe this is the greatest practical benefit, right, of, of the resurrection. Because Jesus is alive, he's with us. Christian, have you understood and internalized this promise? Right, just because we believe something doesn't mean it's working in us, right? Doesn't mean uh, we're living by it. H- have you internalized this one? Remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. We can stop for a moment even now to do that. Right, G- Jesus said he's always with us, right? You can see it. I'm always with you, which in turn means he's with us right now, right, in this room. And it's rude to ignore someone. If I come to your house and you just ignore me, that's kind of rude. Uh, so let's just take a moment uh, to not ignore Jesus. Right? So right where you are, take a second. I'm just going to give you a moment of quiet. And just remember that Jesus is here and just acknowledge his presence. Go ahead and do that. What would change in your day-to-day if you remembered that Jesus was with you more often? In some ways, I, I think this is the most foundational promise we have, right? Most Everything changes in the presence of Christ. So can I just say, say to you, whoever you are, right, whatever your situation, whatever your background, whatever you bring in here today, whatever church baggage you have, um, and I, I know there's a lot of that. Can I just say that Jesus is here, but he's not here in judgment? Not yet. Right? He, is, he is the judge. He's the king, and he will come and judge, but he's not doing that yet. Now, he convicts us for sure. Right? You may be feeling that. But, but faithful are the wounds of a friend, Proverbs says, right? And Jesus is a faithful friend. He wounds us for our good. Can you, whoever you are, in the quiet place of your soul, can you give yourself to the one who gave himself for you? There's no wrongdoing he's not already aware of and he's not ready to forgive. Right? Do you think you're hiding from him? <laughs> he could have struck you down before this. He hasn't. Right? He's still here, and he's still ready to forgive. And he calls you in kindness. There's no person in here who cannot collapse into the arms of Jesus. Won't you throw yourself on his mercy? Christian, won't you again throw yourself completely on his mercy? Don't, don't, we struggle with as much as anyone, right? Don't we try to go our own way? No. Throw yourself on Jesus. Won't you, for the first time, if you're not a Christian, won't you throw yourself on the mercy of Christ? You can, because he's not a myth. He's not a nice religious idea. 
He's not a, a, a fine historical figure that we can study. He is a living Savior, and he is here with us right now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this amazing hope that we have. It's a hope we could not have invented. It's, it's a hope that is too, it, it would be too good to be true <laughs> if you didn't tell us over and over that it's true, that you do in fact love us, that you really did suffer for us, that you really did rise from the dead, and that we are free. Lord, I pray for every one of your children in, in this room right now, that we would live in light of that. We're so bad at, at giving into our flesh. We're so bad at forgetting all that you've done for us. And we need your spirit. We need your grace. We need your help um, to make these things, these real things real in our own hearts. We need, we need your, your help. And so please help us with that. I pray if there's anyone in here who has not collapsed into your arms, um, that's, a, that's a scary thing to do. And so I pray that you would give them the strength, you would give them the help, and you would pour your love into their hearts in a way that they can't deny right now. Lord, we love you, we praise you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.